This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth for all generations. This psalm is my favorite. Make a joyful noise. You're singing, laughing, cheering, a new baby crying, the ocean splashing. Worship, happy music, praying together. And we're, we're ruled by our shepherd because we are sheep. And the gates are right here in our courtyard as we come into our sanctuary with thanksgiving and praise. He's a good God with mercy, truth forever. Oh, there we go. You have to turn it on. That helps, doesn't it? Thank you, Donna. Donna Larson has faithfully served here at Sunset as our receptionist and a lot of administrative help for, you were there years before me, right? So I don't know, is it 30? Yeah, yeah, let's thank her. Unbelievable. And she has stayed steadfast believing that word of God to be true in all those years. And I know because I daily saw her, uh, and she reminded us of that. Um, I want to thank you, Steve, for this series. It's been amazing. It's been so rich to go back into passages that have so shaped my life and ministry um, and sit in them again. And uh, I hope you've done that as well. I hope that you have been inspired to go back to passages of scripture that have been deeply meaningful to you and dig back into them and understand them again and understand the context and have it speak to your heart once again. And I felt that way about the one I'm going to share this morning. My favorite verses as it uh, applies to God's calling on my life as a follower of Christ and as a pastor is Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And it says this, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And I'll just give you a heads up. I don't have a PowerPoint this morning. I love PowerPoints because then I'm not up on the iMag as much. And because uh, I can't bear to look at it, you know, uh, but, um, but I don't have one this morning. So I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible or access it on your phone or tablet, however you uh, get into God's word so that you can be looking at this verse as we walk our way through it, because we are going to walk our way through it to understand what it says. Um, he is the one we proclaim. I want to start with that. 
The first thing that I realized as I really took a deep look at this verse as it related to, to being called into ministry is that it is all about Jesus. He is the one we proclaim. We don't proclaim Sunset Church. We don't proclaim our favorite pastor. We don't proclaim our favorite ministry in the church. We don't proclaim a particular church strategy. We proclaim Jesus. And that frees me from misplaced loyalty or hero worship of earthly leaders. It keeps my own ego in check because it's not about me. It's not that I don't matter, and it's not that ministry doesn't get personal. Uh, I have a brother-in-law that worked for a ministry, and when they did some layoffs, they said to him, it's not personal. (laughs) He said, oh, yeah, it is. (laughs) Maybe not to you, but to me it is. I mean, it gets personal. It gets personal. But I must be very careful about what I proclaim Uh, The meaning of the Greek word here is to herald, to preach a message publicly with conviction. For over 30 years, I've taught about the role of women in ministry at Multnomah Seminary, spoken on it many places. And over the years, um, and I've understood both kind of sides of the coin around women in ministry in evangelical churches, but over the years, and probably partly because of God's call in my life here at Sunset and his affirmation, I made the movement to what I would call a biblical egalitarian position where I believe that God does not put restrictions on what he can call a gifted, called, faithful woman to in terms of roles in the church, whether elder or pastor. And I firmly hold that view. I have great respect for my friends, colleagues, that are what we call complementarians, who would see a restriction. I understand where they're coming from, but that's where I have landed on that issue. There were many people through the years who felt because of my position and my influence that I should proclaim that view, but I can't. I'm happy to explain to you how I came to that conclusion. happy to tell you why and how theologically I got there but I can't proclaim it. That's not what I champion. What I champion is Jesus and the gospel. And I I remember a, a woman who also was a biblical egalitarian, and someone asked her if she would defend her position, and she said, I will explain it, but I will not defend it. The only thing I will defend is the gospel. So I love that this starts off with the fact that we are to proclaim Jesus So we proclaim Jesus, and what's the goal of doing that? I'll come back to how in just a moment. Paul says the goal is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Um, Again, for years I've taught spiritual formation and discipleship at Multnomah, undergrad and then in the seminary. And I'm trying to, I remember trying to help students understand how spiritual growth happens. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, really broken it down and thought about How does spiritual growth happen? Now, we like to make spiritual growth about things like doing certain activities. That's often what we want to do, like reading your Bible or praying or attending a Bible study or going to church. And clearly, there's nothing wrong with any of those, and they're often involved in spiritual growth, no doubt about it. Um, And one of the reasons we like those things is they can be quantified, 
so I can kind of measure how I'm doing with spiritual growth. But are they truly what make us grow spiritually? Because many of you may know of people who've gone to church their whole life, but it hasn't necessarily brought spiritual transformation or growth to maturity. So over the years of studying and trying to understand how spiritual formation happens, I began to see a movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament that seems to kind of inform us as to God's plan for spiritual growth. The Hebrew word for father is used over 700 times in the Old Testament, and it almost always means a biological, physical father. The Hebrew word for brothers used over 300 times in the Old Testament. And again, in almost every instance, or in every instance, it actually means physical, familial brother. Uh, the word um, brother is used 200, or excuse me, the word for father is used over 300 times in the New Testament. And well over half of those are not references to a physical or biological father, but to God. The word brothers used 275 uh, times in the New Testament, and while many of those references are to a biological brother, there's kind of this new theme that emerges around the idea of a brother in Christ. The word, uh, the Hebrew word for family is used 205 times, or the Greek word, in the, New in the Old Testament, and when it's used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for family always means biological family, clan, or tribe. It's used only 21 times in the New Testament, and there are references to biological families, but really, beginning in Galatians 6.10, this new picture emerges when it says, therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So we have this movement from physical families, from a physical nation to a spiritual family, um, and what comes into view is a family that happens when we are born again, that redefines our sense of belonging. It's the spiritual family or God's family. And in that spiritual family, there is every age and stage of growth, just as there is in our physical families. Uh, the Apostle Paul, John understood this very well when he wrote, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then he kind of repeats these stages of growth. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because you know the father, or he uses the word Abba. I write to you fathers because you have you know him who is from the beginning, and I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, don't get wigged out at all the male pronouns. That was very normal in the ancient world. Didn't mean that women were left out. It's just that was kind of like saying mankind instead of we say often say humankind. Um, but it's really about how we grow up in Christ. Um, now, again... When he talks about children, the big thing he talks about with children is that they know their, who their parent is. And that's pretty central to a child's life. Um, my nephew-in-law, Mark, is sitting over here with four of his five kids and his youngest, Jack. He was in Taiwan for three weeks, and when he got home, Carrie said to me, I said, How is it, what's it like for Jack to get home? She said, he can't stop saying dad-dad. 
He just keeps saying, because I'm sure he thought, Mark, you were gone forever and that's it. And he was going to live in Montana with his grandparents from then on out. But instead, all of a sudden, it was Dad. In fact, the first time I got to see Jack after uh, he got back, he, he was like, like, oh, who are you? And then he heard his sister saying, Baba. So he came running over, Baba, Baba. And I picked him up and I said, Jack, did you forget you have a Baba? And he went, He can't even talk yet much, but he understood instinctively in some way that, yeah, I didn't, I forgot you existed because I was in this different world for three weeks and now here you are. This is how little children are. They know the people that love them. Dada, Boppy, Grammy, Baba, Mama. They know those people. And he's saying, When you first come to Christ, the most overwhelming thing you experience is God's love and his forgiveness, and you're overwhelmed by it. But then there's spiritual young men. You go into this next stage of life, and there you're learning how to walk with Christ. And we know that some of that means understanding sin and how to fight against Satan and his desire to have us, you know, be back under slavery again. And then there's fathers. I love what he says about the spiritually mature. They are those who know him who was from the beginning. So what characterizes the fathers is knowing God, knowing God. And the question, one of the questions I love to think about is how do we know God? How do we know the God who is from the beginning? Well, in all reality, that is an entire sermon series of its own. So we're not going to cover that this morning. Suffice to say that in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, I love this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me. That is what we are called to do, and that is what defines spiritual maturity. It isn't how many times you go to church, though we want you here. It's not about how many scripture, Bible verses you've memorized, or, or how many Bible studies you've been, or what your spiritual service record is like. Uh, though, obviously, we believe in serving and giving back and using our spiritual gifts. Those are all important things. But at the center of all that is knowing God intimately. Knowing God, deeply knowing God in rich relationship is the hallmark of spiritual maturity. So let me talk for a moment about maturity because I think that's a very interesting subject. Um, I did a spiritual integration and formation retreat for some counseling students this weekend, Friday and Saturday. I got a text from Steve last night saying he was praying, which I so appreciated. And I texted back and, and, and said, you can pray because I'm tired. And, uh, you know, I'm 65, and, I'm, and I've earned every wrinkle, every sag, everything. I, you know, I can live with it all. But I feel like sometimes I can do everything I could do earlier in life I just have to pace myself a little differently, you know? And the recovery is just a little bit longer. And when I was driving home last night from Vancouver, from this retreat center, I was thinking to myself, man, I'm tired. 
I really am tired. I loved every second of the time I spent with those students. Wonderful time. But I'm tired, and I've got to put a few finishing touches on a sermon and get up and preach tomorrow. I just trusted that God would give me the strength, and of course he does, he does. So when someone asks me, and Steve, I'm sure that you feel the same way after your accident. It's like you feel like you can do everything you used to do, you just got to pace yourself a little differently. And we all feel that way. So if you're over 60 years of age, do you feel like you're over 60 years of age? If oh. <laughs> Yes, there are days, aren't there? Yeah. I remember my mother, when she turned 75, she said, Barbara, I don't feel like I'm 75. I feel like I might be about 65, you know? And I think that's sometimes true. Inside, we don't feel the age. We think, how did I get here? The same thing is true of spiritual maturity. We're so afraid to say that we're spiritually mature because we're afraid of what people will expect of us. We think that that means that they'll think we have all the answers, that we have our act together, and that we never are impacted by trials and tribulations. And that is not spiritual maturity. I used to have some post-it notes that said, I finally got my act together, but now I can't remember where I put it. (laughs) And that's kind of how I feel. Spiritual maturity is not about arriving at some grand plane that no one else is on. It is about knowing God. It's about knowing God. And do I have more to learn And more to experience in my relationship with God, yes, but I know him. I know him. Okay, how does this happen? So three pieces to how we present everyone completing Christ in the second half of that verse. The first one is admonishing. And this has the sense of warning, even reprimanding firmly is the definition And you know what? The idea of warning people, reprimanding people, doesn't sit so well in our culture today, does it? I'm not recommending that any of you go down and wear one of those, you know, you're going to hell type, you know, placards or something in downtown. It doesn't go over too well in our culture, does it? I have found that, particularly in today's world, though I think there's some truth of this in all time, that if you're going to admonish, you need to be in relationship with people. So if we're doing it as pastors, we need to have demonstrated that we are willing to love you and serve you. And in the context of that relationship, we can then admonish you as well. And if you do it with somebody, like in a small group or a friend or a family member, you need to be in a trusting, faithful relationship with them. And the way we do this today, the way we admonish today, might look a little different. I I think one of I can think of times when I've said to people who I dearly love, and uh, and who usually have an internal sense that they need some admonishment, and I'll say to them, "How's that working for you?" And sometimes that's what admonishing looks like today. It's just a dialogue with people about choices, perhaps they're making, the way they're living their life, and how's that working out for you. The second word is teaching. This is the Greek word didasko. Now, you might think that you can't teach. You might think, well, that's just for, you know, pastors to do. That's just for the people up in front. But in reality, one of the definitions of this word from the Greek is to hold discourse with others in order to instruct them. 
Interesting, isn't it? To hold discourse with others in order to just... So in other words, have a conversation about God's word, about God, about Jesus. This means if you lead a small group and you invite people into conversations about God's word, about spiritual growth, about their relationship with Jesus and how it impacts their life, you are technically a teacher. Did you know that? And I want to thank Bill Van Horn, who takes our sermons and then writes small group questions. And he does so in a way that truly invites conversation around these things. So everyone can actually help with this idea of didasco, of teaching. And then thirdly, it says that we're to do this with all wisdom. And every time I read that, I think, uh, I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> How can Paul ask us to do this work with all wisdom? Well, let me tell you that as a girl who swore I would never go back to school after my first round of seminary, um, I can tell you that two degrees later, I feel like what I know is how much I don't know. And as you get further and further into higher education, that is what you discover without a doubt. So the only way that I can really say with all wisdom is when I claim 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. So I have to, in total dependence, access through the Holy Spirit the wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of how he lived his life, the wisdom of how he related to people, the wisdom of how he used and taught God's word in order to do this teaching and admonishing. And then finally, verse 28 tells us what will happen when we engage in admonishing and teaching. And I love this because Paul says, to this end, and he he has two things that he does. He says, he strenuously contends. And by the way, some translations actually use the word labor, and the actual Greek phrase means to struggle, to work hard, to struggle, and to engage in conflict. Crazy. So I don't have to tell you that there is conflict in ministry. Mostly because ministry is all about people. I remember years ago, I had a youth staff member who said to me, he said, Barbara, I love ministry. It's just the kids I can't stand. (laughs) I said, there's a problem with that, (laughs) since that's the whole point of ministry. To hang in there in ministry, you have to endure conflict and live in passages like Ephesians 4, which says, and I remember, I remember sitting in the fireside room, probably... 18, 19 years ago, we were doing a little staff kind of mini retreat here on campus. An outside pastor had come in to minister to us and to challenge us in our ministry roles, and he read this verse from Ephesians 4. And he must have read it with some enthusiasm because it was like I was hearing it for the first time. Be completely humble and gentle. And I remember thinking, huh. I realized that word completely was in there. Because it feels like, to me, it would be enough to just say, be humble. Nope, not enough. Completely humble and gentle. And pretty much that was my takeaway from that day. Wow. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. 
bearing with one another in love. And then towards the end of Ephesians 4, he adds, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That's what it looks like to contend, to labor. Um, And then he says, with all the energy of Christ. And that sounds great to me. (laughs) Stuart and Jill Briscoe, uh, I got to know Jill at several different conferences that she spoke at that I was leading, and it was a delight. And one of those times I got to sit and have tea, and you have, because they're British, and you have tea with Stuart and Jill. And so we were having tea in the afternoon, and they told me, we were talking about ministry, and they said, you know what, sometimes you do ministry tired, and sometimes you do ministry sick, and sometimes you do ministry sick and tired. And that's the reality. So it's hard work to labor uh, on behalf of the church and the body of Christ. But explaining to people how to do the ministry with all the energy of Christ requires that I tell you about something that I heard on the radio many, many years ago. So my parents were in Sacramento. I moved here to Portland. So I often would make the drive between uh, Portland and Sacramento. And I was coming back to Portland one trip, and I had left very, very early in the morning, still dark, so the sun's starting to come up around Redding or so. And I would oftentimes listen to a DJ out of San Francisco called Wolfman Jack. Yeah, some of you know him, remember him. So, dates me, but whatever. And so, um, I would listen to him out of San, because for whatever, for whatever reason, that channel came in well. So, he told this joke one morning. And what I've learned is it was the perfect way to explain what it means to do ministry, to do this calling of helping people become mature in Christ with all the energy of Christ. And I have no idea because it, it, why he told this joke, but here's the joke. He said, a mouse and an elephant ran across one of those swinging rope bridges. Do you know what I'm talking about? The kind that are over big gullies in Africa or places or third world or South America or whatever. A mouse and an elephant ran across the swinging rope bridge. And when they got to the other side, the mouse turned around and said, boy, we sure shook that bridge, didn't we? And I want to tell you that I've had the awesome privilege of being the mouse and running alongside God, the elephant. And when we get to the other side, I turn around and say, boy, we sure shook that bridge, didn't we? But I know who shook the bridge. But that's the privilege of being called to admonish and teach, to proclaim Christ everyone, until we present everyone mature in Christ. Father, this is our calling as a church. This is my calling as a pastor. Uh, It's our calling, the calling of all the staff here at Sunset. And Father, we ask that you would return us to this call. Because this is what we want to be about. And there's so many other things that we get caught up in in ministry. But this is what we want to be about. We know it will not be easy. We know we will do it sick, we will do it tired, and we'll do it sick and tired. We know that it means conflict. We want to live out the calling of being completely humble in the midst of that. 
We want to be your people. We want to know you, truly know you. Help us with this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Remy Dawn. She's my namesake. She has my middle name. And her parents are helping her grow up to be fully mature. And that's what God has called us to do, to help you all grow up to be fully mature in him. So may you take on the call of admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom because you have the mind of Christ so that uh, you can, we can present everyone mature in Christ. And we're going to do this, even though it is a lot of hard work, labor, even conflict, but we will do it with the energy that Christ provides. We're a house of prayer for all nations, so if you would like to pray, if you'd like to pray for the congregational meeting that's coming up, if you would like to uh, pray for needs in your own life, for our church, um, you have time as you wait for the meeting to start, so I'm going to ask those who are willing to pray with people to come forward, but you don't even have to come and pray with someone. You can come up and just spend some time in prayer uh, as you wait for that meeting to begin, or write a verse on one of the windows. May God bless you and keep you, and may you grow to know him fully.